Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I have the honor and pleasure of speaking to a gentleman in Zimbabwe, Rusty Labusheng, a gentleman who was recommended to me by one of my fans and followers who I'm honored and so thankful that she reached out to uh, help me find this gentleman who, with a little bit of research I found out, has one of the most profound, incredible stories that up until this point I've heard and actually haven't heard yet. That's why we have him on the show. So with that said, I'd like to welcome Rusty to the show. Welcome, Rusty. Thanks, Chapman. Oh, man, I'm so happy to have you. Like I said, just a little bit of research instantly turned me on, not just because of the experiences that you've had, but because of your outlook on life. And I'd kind of like to get the really the whole picture of you, your life, and then where you're at today. So maybe you okay. can just take us back to a little bit of your upbringing and and where you were before this incident happened. And we're going to tell the audience in a second what this incident was, but I'd like to kind of hold them in suspense for a second. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jevin, I'm fourth generation Zimbabwean I'm from a cattle ranching background, and I still live in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe today, and grew up um, humbly, um, lost my dad when I was 12. So we battled all the way through. I have uh, two sisters and a brother. My mom struggled to put us through school and everything. And then I got into the safari industry when I left school and became very successful. I had five fully operating safari uh, camps, a fishing resort on Lake Kariba. Um, I was flying my own aircraft. Um, Before I, I became successful, just after school, I played rugby for Zimbabwe, for for the national side which was quite an achievement. And uh, in 2000, during the, the land invasion turmoil in Zimbabwe, um, I had a dispute at my fishing resort on Lake Kariba with some uh, fishing cooperative that were poaching in the area, fish poaching. And I was on a – it was December 2000, and I, I was on a fishing trip with a bunch of mates of mine. And late one afternoon – one of my mates and I decided to go fishing for tiger fish in the lake and left the other guys bream fishing in the river, just one of the estuaries that flow into the lake. And on our way back, we noticed two poachers, fish poachers in a steel boat, who immediately upon seeing us started paddling hastily for the shore in, a, in an effort to get away from us. And knowing they were known poachers, I drove my boat towards them to scare them off. And the wake of my boat tilted their boat causing them to jump out into the water, which was about one and a half meters deep. They were about three meters from the shore. And they scrambled onto the shore, and then my friend and I watched as they ran away into the bush. The following day, the police arrived, and we were accused of drowning one of the poachers. And to cut a long story short, I was framed by the police, the courts, and the judge, the ju- the, and, the, and the poacher, in an ugly conspiracy, and convicted of drowning that poacher. And unbelievably, my co-accused only got a $10 fine and was set free because I was driving the boat. And that that put me into uh, 
at that time, the country was really battling because I got convicted in April 2003, the 3rd of April 2003. Um, the, the country was battling. There was no money for the prisons. So my first day in prison, I want you to try and picture it. We were 78 people in a cell 13 meters by 3 meters. Um, each person had 33 centimeters of space. That's like about 14 inches marked out on the walls in chalk. And we were all packed like sardines and all faced the same direction. When you turned over, you all turned over together. And as cushioning against the cold concrete floor, you'd fold two of your paper-thin, worn-out, lice-ridden blankets several times to fit your space, then covered yourself with a third one. Your clothes were wrapped around your toothbrush and toothpaste, or they'd get stolen, and that was your pillow. And from sleeping on those freezing hard floors, my hips had bruised black rings for years, and shoulders still get trouble today. But what I wanted to say to you as well, Chapin, is that in all the prisons in Zimbabwe, there are no, there's no furniture whatsoever. There's no beds, tables, chairs, cupboards, nothing. It's just rows of filthy folded blankets and worn out water bottles everywhere and on bare concrete floors. The other thing, one of the hardest things to deal with were the lice that never went away, ever. They would crawl and bite day and night, leaving itchy, weeping blisters. And because they never stopped, they were draining, both mentally and physically, and there's nothing you can do about it. And then we only were ever allowed one set of clothing at any one time. After six months, you got a change of clothing, sometimes. Other times, after nine months, leaving you walking around in tatters. I just want you to, to think about, okay, let me, let me go on to, there were no basins or taps in the cells and only one set of clothing. So you had to wash our clothes in the cell toilets at night, wearing a blanket, then hang them on the walls with smuggled book staples to dry by the next morning. Now, just think about having to wear the clothes you're wearing now for six months without a change. Then, in order to retain your dignity, having to wash them in a well-used toilet. Even if it was your sparkling clean toilet at home, then having to wear them the very next day. The humiliation was beyond comprehension. And then, in 2005, during the Zimdola crash, Harari City ran out of water. And for three years, while in Chikaribi Maximum Security Prison, each prisoner was allocated only one plastic cup of water a day. One cup of dirty orange city runoff water from a nearby dam. That was to drink, clean your teeth, wash your face, bath, everything for three years. And then some of the other difficult parts in there were, well, let me, let me just get to what it's like when you get imprisoned and you're innocent. Um, the first thing that goes through your mind is, why me? What have I ever done to deserve this? And then it gets to, maybe I'm being protected in here. You know, there's a whole lot of things going through your head. And then, then I, I started believing that I've been put here for a reason. Because, uh, for the first, there's no other, there's no other way to get through it, Chapin. It's the only way mentally to get through something like that. And the the biggest lesson I learned in prison 
was true forgiveness. And the humiliation of being labeled a murderer and terrible conditions were extremely hard to deal with, as was the pain of my bitterness, anger, hatred, frustration, revenge. I hated them bitterly and initially would lie there for hours, wishing every terrible thing on each of them in turn, the poacher, the police, the judge, the ministry, and all who were involved in my conviction. But then one day, I was struck by the realization that they'd all forgotten about me long ago. Here I was, consumed by the unfairness of it all, and they, blissfully unaware of the evil I wished on them every day. In the end, I was only hurting myself. I was carrying all that in my head and beating myself up for nothing. The single biggest lesson I learned in prison was true forgiveness. And to me, it's bigger than anything we can achieve on our own. True forgiveness is inspired by God Almighty, and so is letting go. And it was a huge weight off my shoulders. And and I learned to live in the moment from then on. The past was too painful, and the future full of unkept promises. So I just dealt with each day as it was, because no amount of worrying was going to change what I was going through. And I believe that if you have anger or resentment towards anyone in any way, it will eventually destroy you. Because that is what those emotions do. They steal from you. They steal happiness and freedom. And a lot of people say to me, how did, how did it come about? How did it, how did you just suddenly forgive? It's not, it's nothing that you can ever explain. It's just one day I just said to myself, after all this anger and hatred and everything, I just thought, just, just let me let God take care of them. And it was, it's just like a switch. It just one day I just let go and I never thought about them again. And people say to me, but they've taken 10 years from you. They've taken your, all your companies, everything. You've got nothing left. Don't you hate them? Everything. And, and my, my answer to that, Chapin, is that I don't give them one second more thought. They've taken 10 years. They've taken watching my children grow up. They've taken everything from me. They're not taking another second of my thought. That's all behind me now. All I see in front of me is happiness, love, and fun. And when I, when I look at, at how much they took from my children, for example, and my son was 18 and we used to discuss and dream about making millions and plan endless projects and adventures. And, and my daughter, uh, we, we have an, an extraordinarily beautiful bond. And since a baby, she's always been my shadow. And as special as she is to me, I am to her. But at 16, I was her anchor. I was everything in her eyes. She confided in me without boundaries and clung to everything I said and did. And I loved them beyond expression. And they, they loved me. And the times they needed me most, I wasn't there. They went through first loves, crushes, dances, 21st birthdays and entered the wide world, and I wasn't there to see it. And I don't want anyone ever to have to feel that way. Just just make enough time for your loved ones. Wow. Uh, if there's any anything you want to ask me, but I, otherwise I'll just carry on. <laughs> I do have a few things I just want to go back and, and kind of clarify for myself. I mean, uh, quite a few. So just going back to it, when the, the gentleman, did the gentleman actually drown and die? No, no one drowned. 
The guy's living in Zambia now, remarried with two kids in that whole area. It's a well-known fact. I I spent $42,000 US dollars trying to find him. And then I thought, and it's like a needle in a haystack. As soon as it's a very, very remote area. So as soon as any foreign person goes in there, because I used uh, uh, private investigators to do it, and they just came back. They were there for a year, and they came back and said they, they got affidavits from guys that had been with him, and no one was interested in that. They wanted him. Wow. And I just they're taking more and more from me, just let it go, put it behind me. And something else while I'm on there and I'm thinking about it, Chapman, is – is how you, you know, people say to me, did you ever see a counselor when you came out? And I said to them, what counselor has ever been where I've been? No one can ever teach me how to get through that. And, and the way I did it was there's no interference in there. So there's nothing distracting your, your feelings from your physical freedom, feelings from your, from your thoughts. There's, there's a direct link between your thoughts and the physical, your physical feeling in your stomach. So when I thought about my fiance with another man, for example, it hurt me in my stomach. Or my friends having fun in Las Vegas where we used to go every year, it hurt me. So I counseled myself not to think about those things. And I had this fantasy girlfriend called Cherie and we used to fly all over the world and catch Marlin in Mexico and everything felt fantastic. And that's where I lived. I lived in this fantasy world, and it was all beautiful, but you have to. It's the only way to get through that. That's interesting, because I'd like to touch upon that. You know, when you found true forgiveness, and you talk about the mental, emotional connection. Um, have mm-hmm. you ever read the book, The Power of Now? No. Have you, no. Heard, have you heard of it? I have. I have, but I just haven't got around to reading it. Okay. Well, I've read it quite a few times now and found tremendous interesting points that I can relate to. And it sounds very relevant to what you describe, where being in a prison, mm-hmm. you have, as Eckhart Tolle in the book says, in every situation you find yourself in, you have three choices. You can either accept it for what it is, mm-hmm. you can somehow try to change the situation you're in directly, yeah. or you can walk away from it. And under the circumstances that you were in, you had only one option, which was to accept yeah the circumstances that you found yourself in and find another way to free yourself from those circumstances, which was not allowing your mind to go into those dark places and realizing that your mind is creating this illusion of sorts. And can you talk more about that? Cause this actually really fascinates me. You know, that, that kind of lightning bolt moment that you had, it sounded like where you just kind of realized and had everything drip away from you. Like, I really like to get into that if you don't mind. No, no, that, I love that part of it. Um, you want me to try and explain what, what triggered me to, to that decision? That and the feeling that corresponds with it, because I think, and I'm no expert on this. I practice what this book talks about every day, the power now keeping my present consciousness present in the moment and not allowing the past or the future to um, mm-hmm. corrupt my internal environment. But yeah. I feel like it's more of a feeling than a thought. It's more of an overall feeling that people need to understand rather than trying to think their way out of a situation. And I think you have a great story in that you realize you couldn't necessarily just think your way out of it. You had to accept it. This is where you were going to be for the next 10 years of your life. 
and you found somehow peace and salvation in that. Is that correct? Yeah, you you get into like a survival mode because you have no control of of anything in there. They control what you read, write, eat, drink, say, hear. Everything is controlled. So you have no control. You have to accept what is there. And and when I say you go into survival mode, you know we we've survived some some amazing things. Some guys have been on shipwrecks for forty eight days and bobbed in the ocean for three days. So the human being can withstand a lot as long as you've got a place to lie down, air to breathe, and something to drink. And when you're in there, you get to that situation where you, you as long as you're breathing and you're okay, then I mean everything, everything else doesn't even matter. Doesn't doesn't come into your into your mind at all. It's getting through every day, and I carry that with me now. You know, I I don't let things get me down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sort of like. I don't lower myself to be affected by the things that that uh, don't really matter. And I think that's the easiest way of putting that. I see. So maybe when, you know, you wake up and something doesn't go your way throughout the day, um, you don't even allow your mind and emotions to identify with that thing that came unexpectedly and allow yourself to become affected by it. Is that correct? Absolutely. If there's ups and downs in life and if, and if one day is not so good, well, that's one of the bad days. It's not a big thing. Mm-hmm. If every day was wonderful, and it it wouldn't be fun anymore. And and I always believed that, and it helped me get through as well. Get through that. Which happened is, his life is full of balance. So if there was too much rain, everything would flood, and if it was there was no rain, everything would dry up and shrivel away. So I also believed that if I had to go through all of that horror then there's got to be great things coming out the other side. And you have to believe that. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> that balance that you're talking about is is uh, an important part of getting through all that. When you had that moment in prison, was there any moments that came after that you can say were joyful? Did you ever experience any moment of joy after after that in prison? When you're, when you're in there um, – you have to find even the smallest things that make that make you happy. What were, what were they for you? Just fooling around, you know, just just practical jokes and laughing, and you had to you had to find happiness in even the smallest things that happen in prison, and that's what kept kept us healthy. In the first six years, Chapin, I watched over two thousand two hundred guys die, primarily from malnutrition and disease. That's only in the prisons I was in because there was no food. There was no food outside of prison, never mind in prison. So there were people dying everywhere. <clears throat> and one day uh, we were playing cards with a friend of mine on a tarred floor of the exercise yard, and there were about 800 people in the exercise yard. It was really crowded, and a guy sitting next to me rolled over dead. We just turned a little so we couldn't see him until prisoner hospital staff collected him. That's how terrible it was in there. There were people dying everywhere, and you could smell dead people continuously, day and night. But that incident has always left me wondering why that guy died and I didn't. Why so many people lost their lives and I had the privilege of living. And I'll never never really know why, but it's made me humble and appreciate every little thing about my life. And there, there are things... We have all in some way become desensitized to things in our community at one time or another. 
And I believe it's a surviving mechanism. But it also reduces compassion and humanity. And it's a fine line to tread when pushed so deeply. But if you've lost the ability to empathize, then you've lost what it means to be human. It it was hell in there. To get through that was, you know, it's hard to explain it on on audio, but the way we lived in there was was horrific. You see guys in the shower that looked like like the German concentration camps in the Second World War. It was just the same. There was skin and bone. There was no food. It was unbelievable. Wow. And were mm. you in there with um, a comparable amount of different ethnicities, or were you a standout because you were one of the only white men in there? Um. We were 2,200 guys in Chikaruby Maximum Security Prison. We three three white guys, and the rest were black guys. And the one white guy died in 2007, so only two of us made it through there. And then there were some mercenaries from South Africa, but they were in the foreign section. And <clears throat> because of because of my color, or our color, and being um, a high profile prisoner from from who I was and, and, and my case, um, I, I got a lot of privileges compared to the other guys. In, and those were, um, if I had issues or problems, I could ask to see the officer in charge. And because I had a lawyer and an advocate, I would get to see him. But guy, other guys who, who would ask, they would just be shrubbed off. So in, I didn't uh, have privileges in, in the way we stayed and everything, but if I had a issues and I raised them, they were addressed. Interesting. And that's primarily because you had a little bit of financial means outside of prison that could continue to fight for you while you were inside. Yeah. That, that, uh, that, and you know, something that's interesting is, um, during the, um, the, uh, colonialization of, of Rhodesia in those days, um, which was done by the British mainly. The British were very honest with the, with the, the, with the tribes back then. So there was always an honesty and, and a respect between the whites and the blacks. Um, the war wasn't to do with uh, racial tension. The war was to do with, um, the power struggles and who could, you know, who could, uh, lead the country. But, that respect for each other. I went in there. Uh, I still got treated like like I was um, like an owner of a company, and so that that respect remained there all the time. And and for that, we're very very lucky in Zimbabwe. We have peace loving people, and I think that's what separates us from many many other countries in in Africa. Interesting. What kind yeah. of um, sicknesses did you endure throughout your 10 years in prison? I mean, did you come very close to death ever due to the dysentery that you got or anything like that? I got uh, I got poisoned in 2011. Apart from that, I'll get to that now, I, I just suffered a lot of allergy problems and they weren't really addressed well in prison. So I regularly got chest infections and stuff, but the, the um, TB was – was rife in prison. There were thousands of guys that, that got TB in, in the time I was in prison. And then, of course, HIV was quite 
quite rife as well. So a lot of guys died from that, especially when times are tough and there was no food, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but apart from that, I didn't uh, have any normal, you know, just flu and stuff like that that everyone gets. But I just made, you know, when you have, uh, you, you realize in there that the most important things in life can't be bought. And that's your health, your loved ones, and your friends. When you go to prison, you walk in stark naked. They strip you naked, and you walk into that prison with no clothes on. They give you clothes inside there. And when I say walk in, you walk in the main gates, straight in amongst a thousand people, and you put clothes on in front of them. Then, getting back to that being poisoned, I uh, I became very close to like some of the officer charges and and stuff, the higher, higher up, and the guards are very, very good to me. And there was, in 2010, so I went in in 2003, in 2010, when I was in a medium security prison, um, we had a huge cholera outbreak there. And just to get on the death rates back to that, in eight months, uh, in 2008 and nine during the cholera outbreak at Arari Central Prison, out of 1,200 of us prisoners, 432 died in eight months. It's more than one third of us. It was unbelievable. That's when that guy sitting next to me rolled over dead. Um, yeah, but, but after that, uh, in March 2009, Red Cross took over feeding. Before that, Red Cross or any human rights people were never allowed anywhere near our prison. And then the death rate was so hectic and, and it became more and more public. So they started allowing Red, Red Cross to feed us. And March, March 2-9 they started and the death rate dried up within weeks. People stopped dying. And then uh, about a month, a year later in 2010, um, the Minister of Health came to the prison and the officer in charge and I were good mates and we were about the same age and it was very very hard to see him you know it's like seeing like the manager of a huge company but I always had access to him through the pecking order in prison that uh, um, that I told you about earlier yeah and he came to me in the court in the yard in the exercise yard and he said Russ I want you to do it the minister of health is coming tomorrow and I want you to do a talk for me so I said, well, can I tell him everything? And he said, yeah, you can tell him everything. And I did. I told him I had all the death rates in my head, washing, you know, we had to wash our clothes in the toilets, um, the, the broken gutters, the food, uh, the lice. I told him everything. And afterwards he thanked me very much and he asked me for my piece of paper that I was reading from. And then about 10 days later, about 12 senators came to the prison. And the officer in charge briefed me before and I, and I gave them a talk as well. And they were not very impressed with me and asked me for my paper as well. And not long after that, I was transferred to a farm prison. So I was eight years in, in a closed prison, which is high security. One was medium security and then five and a half years was in maximum security. But the farm prison that I went to is, run on trust completely. So there's no fences or bars or anything. It's all on trust. And it was like heaven. We had our own beds. It's the only prison in Zimbabwe that has beds. But 
it, it's not really a prison. It's just a farm that's run by prisoners. Mm. And and uh, about two months after I was there, I I had guys that I looked after. So we used to eat together and and do things together. And some they were cooking because at that prison we were allowed to receive food from our from our families, and we had a fridge there, so we kept the food in the fridge. And they would cook for me. And one evening I was lying there, and and suddenly I felt my hands going all tingly and juices running into my mouth. It was about five minutes after I'd eaten, and I knew immediately that I'd been poisoned. To get a long story short, I ended up in intensive care for seven weeks in Harare. And it's the closest I've ever been to dying. I was finished. And I, uh, they never found out what it was. They, they tested me for typhoid, for botulism, everything, HIV. It went on and on. I had 14 vials of blood, uh, stool and urine samples, everything. And the only thing they came up with was that my e-hemoglobin count, which is like your antibodies fighting any foreign uh, matter that comes into your body, mm-hmm. it's like the, the army in you. Your normal count is supposed to be zero to a hundred and mine was five thousand. So they said if you weren't in the condition you're in, you would never and um I I never gained my physical condition again to where I was then. And you know, I'm a fitness freak, so I train all the time, but I, I've never get, got back to that level. And since then I've been asthmatic as well. So it did hammer me quite hard. So do and you I, do you think there's any correlation then between the senators who are not very happy with you and you getting poisoned? It's the only thing I can put it to. There's no other reason why anything would happen like that to me. And and, and the reasoning being that they didn't want you to get out and tell your story kind of thing? That's exactly the, that's the only conclusion I can put to it. There's nothing else. Interesting. Yeah. That's yeah. that's wild. Just quite terrifying, yeah. What's so, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying that uh, me telling my story is also quite a risk for me. But there were a lot of uh, very high politicians and, and senior guys in government that were very anti-me being um, con- incarcerated. And they tried to help me get out as well. And it, it caused a lot of trouble for a lot of people. Is there a lot of violence yeah. in those prisons? Yeah, there's a lot of fighting. We don't have um, that many stabbings and and the guards have got a lot more control than they do in America. So you do have rapes in there. You have a lot, you know, fighting and stabbings now and again. But it's it's pretty much controlled. The, the guys are not, you know, they they are unruly bunch. Some of the guys very unruly, but generally they they they're controllable. <laughs> Interesting. So then, yeah. you, what year did you get out? In two thousand and thirteen, April the third, two thirteen. What was the first thing you did when you got out? Really want me to tell you? Yeah, tell me, please. <laughs> no, I had a barbecue with a whole bunch of mates, about 100 guys, and it was just fantastic at my house. It was beautiful. Eh? Oh, that's wonderful. So, throughout yeah. your being incarcerated, your family was able to maintain your businesses for you? No, my business went broke in 2010. So, I still have my properties, but I was lost. Uh, I was left a lot of debt. And uh, all the companies went broke. So 
This is my income now. <laughs> and you are a professional speaker now, traveling the world or just throughout Zimbabwe? I've been invited to travel, to, to speak all over the world, but I'm battling with visas. I'm working really hard now on a visa to America, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get it. So I hope to visit you there. That would be amazing. Now, why would you be battling with visas? Is it because they don't want you to get out of Zimbabwe to tell your story? No, it's because America turned me down. The The American embassy in Harare recommended a waiver for me because with my criminal record, I don't automatically qualify, mm -hmm. which to me is total discrimination. You know, I thought that if you had served your sentence, you're supposed to be rehabilitated and normal. Mm -hmm. That obviously there's discrimination on that. Um, so they recommended they, they took my transcript and read through it and then recommended a waiver, but the home security in America rejected it. Hmm. So, and then I had lawyers in New York followed up and they said that they have to go by the court ruling. And, you know, if you're a dangerous, if you're convicted of a dangerous crime like that, uh, they won't accept you. Hmm. So yeah, it was total discrimination in, in that side, but, I'm hopeful I'm going to get it. Um, I've been told that I've got a good chance of getting a visa. So That's great. You'll hearing, yeah, you'll be hearing from me. <laughs> I'm excited to be one of the first to get your story outside of uh, Zimbabwe. <laughs> That'll be great. I've, I've been invited to talk to some, some big places. So it's very exciting. That is exciting. So as of today, as of now, you are on a, a circuit that you get paid to speak. Is that correct? And do you have any That's other correct. income sources coming in? I, I've i got field guard training courses that I do with a, a friend of mine that I've known for about 40 years, Andy Connolly. He owns a place called Antelope Park in Zimbabwe. And there's a field guard training courses called FUGAZA, Field Guards Association of Southern Africa. And I'm an assessor, which is like an examiner. So... I take people on field guide training courses for 50 days and then put them through um, some examinations and they end up with a certificate that forgot level one, level two and level three. Mm -hmm. And that's going really well. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm a farm boy by heart and nature's in my blood. So I'm loving that. So that's another side of, of my business that I do. Uh, and you are a professional hunter as well. Is that correct? Yeah, professional hunter and professional guard, yeah. Um, do you hunt for your food? Is that how you're putting meat on the table or is that still just kind of for fun sport? No. You know, when we when I left school, uh, let me go back to when I grew up. Um, I'm a farm boy and we grew up, you know, fishing and hunting. And when we say hunting, just shooting impala, for ration meat, we were allowed to shoot two impala a week to, to for ration meat for the for the labor on the farm. And then, if we saw a kudu bull, for example, it was big news. For you know, you got home that night and you told everyone, "Wow, I saw a kudu bull today." And then the war came, and the wildlife got hammered and hammered more and more. Um, remember in those in the old days when when they settled Rhodesia, they cattle was money. Not game. So the game, there was no value in animals. So you could go out to a farmer's, you know, to, to, to a farmer's place and if you wanted to shoot, uh, a kudu bull or, or an eland or something, you'd shoot one and he'd say, 
uh, drop a hind quarter for me, and there was no value in it. It was just it was just something that was eating the grass, and, and the grass was for the cattle. Mm. And then after the war, um, a group of us started uh, realized the value of professional hunting, where people would come out and pay money to shoot the animals, and we'd give the, money, the meat to the farmers as well. So we started a campaign educating farmers on the value of wildlife. And we said to them, you know, there were people that were shooting sable antelope for ration meat, for example. And every every large cattle ranching and, and private cattle ranch gave bonuses for people that trapped leopard because they were vermin. They, they, anything that killed cattle, they you could destroy them. And then we said, no, 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 we'll pay you for them and then we'll, we'll give you the meat. Obviously not for the leopard, but um, we said to them, as long as we can we can control the offtake and how it's taken off. So we we didn't take anything out of breeding herds, uh, only old males um, that weren't the past their prime. No females were taken at all of any species. And then any money that went back to the farm for the wildlife, we made them start anti-poaching units, which weren't heard of back, you know, when I grew up. And then feeding game during droughts, reintroducing the game that had been shot out. And the game suddenly became so valuable that hundreds and hundreds of farmers went out of cattle farming into game farming. And by 2000, there was more wildlife in Zimbabwe than there's ever been from hunting. And uh, then the land invasions came and and that was the end of the wildlife. It's been hammered badly. Interesting. So yeah, you're you're very a conservationist. Cons- yeah, <laughs> and very my whole life. I see. That's interesting. Yeah. And so, how come you haven't just jumped back in that game then? As far as um, having like uh, people come and and utilize your land for for hunting. Well, I don't have any land left um, for the hunting side, and and also I'm over it. You know, it's not the same. It's not. And one of the things that destroyed it a lot, Chapin, you, you won't really understand it, but is, you know, in the old days, around when you're sitting around a campfire, it was the humor of being there out in the wild, in the bush, and the camaraderie that came with all the stories around the fire and everything. And you go there now, and everyone is sitting on their cell phones and there's Wi-Fi, and they're sending pictures to here and there. And it's not, it's all about, about technology now. It's not about the old raw feeling we used to get. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's all been lost. It's so sad. And, and I just don't want to be part of that anymore. I and see. then now I've been in it for 30 years since 1980. So I'm over it. You know, I've done it. I was, I had all the wonderful times when everything was great and I built it all up fantastic. And now it's been destroyed and it just hurts too much. And, and also I've been in isolation for so long. And then when you go in the bush, it, it's sort of back to your isolation. And I, I'm just feeling great meeting so many new people and making such a difference. And, and that's really what – this is not all about making money for me. It's about changing lives and making a difference. And it's, and it's really helping so many people. Eh? Yeah, it sure is, man. Do you find it hard to relate to people now that you're out of prison? Do you have that sort of um, – um, 
that repatriation syndrome that a lot of like expatriates get when they come back to their home country after being away for so long, they just don't really kind of connect with society anymore. Or do you have that feeling ever? No, I've never had that problem, but I, I fit in with everyone. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's good for you. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, but that's something that I realized, uh, Chapin, is that we create our own prisons in life. And, and I see it so clearly when, when I look at bad, uh, badly selected careers, unhappy marriages, um, bad partnerships, and people being obsessed with the ambition in the corporate world. I mean, people are stuck in there in ruts in, and I just, they're in their own prisons and they're not, they're not even in prison. And it's so sad when I see it all, you know, and, and I just said to my daughter and my son, just make sure when you get married, I'm going to be a granddad on Monday, by the way. Um, don't put yourself in prison. Make sure you know what you're doing. And even in, in your career, make sure you do something you like, you enjoy. Don't, don't have regrets when it's too late and you can't get out. You know? Yeah. Congratulations, by the way, on your uh, grandchild yeah. on the way. That's awesome. I have a little niece that I love spending time with. It's awesome. Beautiful. Um, I have just have a few more questions. Can you just take me through like a normal day for you? Like, what do you do on a normal day? Um, right now, today, like, for example, what did you do? And what, what, what brings you pleasure on a normal day? Okay. I, I'm working with people at the moment, Kevin, on, on interventions where we look at companies and what's troubling the company and ways that I can change that with what I went through and, and write speeches that, that, uh, that address those issues. And it's just so challenging. You know, every company has got different issues and different directions that are not looking good. And then we try and, I, I try and create a speech, um, relating to what I went through and how I got through it and how that can, can change the way, uh, their futures can turn out, you know. And That's really interesting. So were you, yeah, did you come up with that idea or did someone approach you with that concept? Um, I'm working with, with a, with a, an agent here called Unique Speaker Bureau. And there are only about, there are only 35 of us speakers. They've interviewed over a thousand people in the last three years and they took on three. So I'm very, very privileged to be part of Unique Speaker Bureau. And uh, one of the co-owners is a guy called Michael Jackson. And he's known as the other Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he's a legend. He's done over 2,600 uh, keynote speeches around the world. And he's really, really taken a fascination to me. And he's my mentor. I just uh, I just worship the guy. And he's working with me and a, and a lady called Bev Hancock, who's also got an amazing mind. And and the three of us are working on these speeches to create for this, these interventions. And uh, I'm loving it. Eh? So that's what I do uh, during my day. So my voice is a bit tired from from talking, speaking to myself in my, my stupid computer. <laughs> <laughs> you have a beautiful voice, my man. That accent, I'm sure, melts a lot of women's hearts here in America when they hear it. Um, <laughs> one more question. Like, do you have any place that people can find you online? Do you have a website of your own that you would like to kind of give a shout out to so people can come hear more about you and your story? Sure. Um, my my website is called Living in Chains. Um, 
and then you can, I've got some YouTube clips out. And I've only been talking since April last year, and I, and I only signed up with Unique Speaker Bureau uh, two months ago. So I've got another um, filmed or um, videoed speech coming up on Monday that'll be on YouTube as well. That, but the YouTube clips at the moment they're only five minutes long. I'll they'll be there'll be longer ones coming out. So you can find me on on the website at Living in Chains and my name Rusty Lebuskachny. Right. And then on Facebook as well. I'm on Facebook and that'll be my name under my name. Cool. I will put all these yeah. uh, links up in the show notes so it's it's easy for people to find you and. I hope this brings you more speaking engagements, my man. It's been such a pleasure having you, Rusty. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I really appreciate you, my man. Thank you, Jeff. And it's been wonderful meeting you and chatting, but thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it, it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.